0: Please be advised that in order to foster quality discussions in each episode, we will spoil the stories in each game and text we talk about. Good news is, 90% of the titles we cover are old enough that many of you might already know all about them. That said, we do encourage you to play and read before listening. So, Caleb, when was the last time you read something contemporary that made a good, like, political point or, like, something uh relevant to the times and it didn't come off cliche or dull or boring? Have you ever read anything like that recently, the last five, ten years?
1: Oh, I'm sure I have. Not Stephen King's Elevation. That was very ham-fisted. Um, Elevation? Yeah, it was a... Stephen King's story about lesbians and some guy who, uh, though he looks like he is a full-figured man, he uh, keeps getting lighter. And It's pretty stupid. Um, it was a novella, I believe. No, what was a contemporary? See, I read a lot of stuff, but it usually ends up not being contemporary. Yeah. Um, I was I would say The Road by Cormac McCarthy, but I don't know if that's really political because you don't actually know the catalyst for the catastrophe that happens in that book. I would assume it was a political in nature, like a nuclear war or something, but it could have been environmental. Uh, What about you? I
0: can't think of anything. Nothing. I gotta be honest, I don't read a lot of contemporary stuff, but every time that I do, I'm not satisfied. The last thing I can remember that was really contemporary, I think, was David Duchovny's book, Truly Like Lightning. Truly Like Lightning.
1: I've been meaning to read that, but I haven't gotten to him yet. Actually, I think I bought Spencer that for Christmas last year, but I haven't read
0: it. Did he read it? Not yet. Okay. It's like good, but I didn't really love it. Uh, It's, it's, it's about a guy that becomes Mormon and it's got really interesting points. It's like, you know, it's, it's David Duchovny's take on Mormonism, like the extreme Mormonism, you know, like sister wives kind of thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's, and it gets really intense. It's like, it's got a, it's got a decent plot, uh, like, uh, what's the word? Like story arc, but I can't, I just can't read contemporary fiction by anybody and Feel like it's like it comes off naturally. It always feels a little bit like they're writing an essay being in preached to form. almost, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And and like, well, but before we go on, establish what you consider contemporary because I always consider contemporary anything after the 70s, but now that's pushing like 40 50 years ago. So I guess,
0: I, I mean, I don't know. I don't Let's know. say after
1: 2000s, because yeah, I think I there was so. a big shift in fiction after the 2000s, and I even though I haven't read it, I've, I heard The Handmaid's Tale is a more, uh, it, it's along the lines of what you're talking yeah. about, where it's not preachy or essayist, it's just like the nature of the novel unfolds in a way where you're like, holy shit, that's happening, and then uh, I, I could see that maybe falling into that category.
0: Yeah, and I don't know what the actual definition, if there are de- actual definitions that, like that differ between modern fiction and or contemporary fiction. I, I don't know really what, but yeah, like, The last, I mean, like I said, the last like five, 10 years, I guess, I guess more like 10. Yeah. I just think there's so many people trying to make political points or just points of the times and they get too distracted by making their points. They can't tell a good story. And a lot of it, a lot of it for me is when it comes to talking about like minority group, it's frustrating because I think it's, I think those things should be talked about because they're relevant to the times. But. I always, whenever I experience them, even in movies, uh, movies and and fiction, I, I they I experience them, and I can't help but feel like even if I were part of those minority groups, just anything it doesn't doesn't matter whether it's like race or whatever. I feel like I would still like if I'm still the person that I am right now, but like if I still have the character that I have, and and I'm yeah. in one of those minority groups, I still would hate those things they just don't come off that nothing contemporary to me comes off like quality work. It doesn't come off naturally. It, it's not like I'm experiencing like I'm immersed in the story. I I'm always pulled out. Yeah. By the points that are being made.
1: I was looking through my uh, recently read list and I couldn't find anything that was contemporary that fits the bill. Um, I know Colson Whitehead has been praised for some of his work and I pretty sure it's Uh, most of his stuff is pretty political in nature but there's a lot of uh i want to say i guess i haven't read his work but i I believe like uh, a lot of magical realism and stuff's incorporated even though he's a friend of mine i would say maybe nicholas obergon's books count because he's one of the few contemporary writers i've read where i've really enjoyed his work but i don't think there it's too political like his first book blue light yokohama I mean, that's set in Japan, so that's kind of hard to, for us to judge, you know, what would be the political merits of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, doesn't by no means does he pander to his audience or tries to throw in diversity for diversity's sake or anything like right. that. It's about the story first. Why is the guy Japanese? Because he's a Japanese detective and it's set in Japan, and that's what you get. Uh, his second book, Sinza Scarlet, is the one I think would be closer because it has a lot of uh, transgenders. Um, like they could set where it's in California, I believe, uh, same protagonist as the first book and then he ends up going to Mexico where there's like this drug kingpin who I believe is like taking transgender people. He has like a fetish for him and he's doing like a lot of heinous things and like trafficking and stuff. But what comes across in that book is you just feel for the people in the story is really good and you don't actually look at it as like well what he's trying to say is the political message of the left is correct because of this or that or like he doesn't care about that that's not the focus of the book it's just the story and the lives of the people that are in the story and that's how you tell like john steinbeck's a great example most of his works are political in nature, but you never get the political. Right. Like it's just like maybe it's an allegory or something, or in the background, but it's the plight of the people. You know, the grapes of wrath, East of Eden. Like these books are the plight of the people and the socio economically whatever they are now. Uh, I'm sorry, last episode of the DPW podcast we did uh, we end the episode by talking about inclusive writing. Oh, so I, you're not allowed to say poor people anymore. Really? Yeah, you have to say socially economically. Not challenged. I forget what it was. but It, it was really annoying. <laughs> I think I actually sent you the list before, like a week or month or something ago. But uh, oh, yeah, yeah. underprivileged people, uh, this a nice way of saying it. Uh, he wrote a lot about that, you know, the dirt farmers and shit. And it doesn't come across as pandering or lecturing or trying to get this message across. It was just about the people and the story. And that's what you ultimately want to get across you don't want this long boring uh, I'm trying to think of a good example of that maybe Ann Rand would be a good one of just like trying to get your message and your yeah. ideology across and everybody's like fuck you right. like, even if you yeah. agree with it you're just like fuck you come on just tell the story Uh, that's the one that comes to mind for me anyway, but I'm sure there are other writers like that. I just don't read that stuff.
0: I had to read something. I had to read the Fountainhead by Ayn Rand in college. It was like one of the first, it was my first lit class. I think I was like one of the first books I had to read in college. (laughs) And Just be
1: Anne. Don't be Ayn. Don't throw a Y in there. Just be Anne.
0: I don't know if that's actually, I don't, I I think it's, I think she pronounces it Ayn. I don't care what she
1: pronounces I don't fucking know. Stupid lady.
0: Uh, but, yeah, oh, my God. I, I liked reading that book, but I know that if I went back and read anything by her, I'd be like, oh, my God, shut the f- up.
1: Her work uh, was the type of work that appeals to the youth, at least at the time, mm. who are, you know, ideologically inclined and are yeah, just searching for their ideas. But once your ideas are kind of cemented and you know who you are and what you believe, that shit just pisses you off. Right, right. But when you're kind of lost and searching for something, you you know, especially a lot of people who we know previously, people personally who just attach to any ideology and hope it sticks like oh i'm part of this community now even if it's a bad community we Mm -hmm. see that a lot in the u.s right now obviously but yeah yeah, she's one of the there's a lot of writers like that actually that come out and it's just like movie makers comic book writers there's always a group of fucking assholes (laughs) who are just like i don't actually believe this shit but i know these people do so i'm just gonna pander to these people and then i'm gonna write and make work that only this select group's gonna like, and the other side's just gonna boycott me to hell. But that gets me more press anyway. So yay, I just make money. <laughs> I was like, don't do shit just for the money. Like that's that's terrible.
0: And I was wondering if you were gonna bring up Nicholas Obregon, and I'm still interested in reading something by him. I don't know when I would fit it in, but because it sounds like he's the kind of thing that I'm looking for. I wanna I wanna read about I don't know the right fits the right word, but I I wanna read something that addresses diversity. And it's not like a topic that I'm like all about, but I wanna be able to experience it in a story that makes me like really feel it. Instead of just creating like a superhero movie where there's a where there's yeah every different kind of person because they decided they they made a point to do that.
1: The coalition of rainbow people. We have every color on the spectrum. Why? (laughs) Uh, If you, I mean, it's not contemporary, but Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison is obviously a great one.
0: I just heard something about that recently. Yeah, uh,
1: if you want a more raunchier version of that, uh, Native Son by Richard Wright is written around the same time. Those are both stories about uh, disenfranchised black people in America both different, like Invisible Man is basically like being, you're invisible when you're black in the 30s and 40s, like they, nobody really paid attention to you, you just kind of had a shitty job and you just went through life and you had to deal with injustice. Uh, Native Son's a little worse because you get uh, all the in- injustice and the poverty and everything, that I believe is set in Chicago, but you also get the other side of the corner is like, well, this guy's a fucking criminal though still. So it's like, I'm not rooting for him either. He's a piece of shit, but you get why he's a piece of shit. And then that's where you actually get the complexities of a narrative about diversity that, Hey, this is still a person. doesn't matter if it's a black person or a white person, it's a person and it's their story and it's their character that matters. And that what doesn't come across in a lot of contemporary fiction because, and a good example of this is anything where They shoehorn in, let's say, a female character, a person of color, Mm -hmm. any person, and that's their defining trait, not their character of the person, not their merit. Like That's why I had such a uh, beef with that new Amazon Lord of the Rings show. I ended up really hating it. I watched a couple episodes of it. Because, you know, I love Lord of the Rings. I love the lore. And it was like, I didn't care if they had black elves and they were incorporating more women and stuff. It's like, whatever. As long as they tell a good story. They didn't tell a good story. They had this fucking Galadriel turned into a warrior for no reason. They took away everything that was likable about her and just made her this headstrong idiot Mm -hmm. and just... It was like, this is not the character. Why are you doing this? Because mm-hmm. you had to have girl power. She had to be a girl boss and save the day, uh, even though she just caused all her own problems. So it's like, why are we doing this stupid shit? Like yeah. She called, she created Sauron, basically, in that show from when I was watching. I was like, okay, <laughs> never mind. I'm not about this at all. But it's just like, that's a bad way of doing it. Like You can show the plight of somebody without making that their whole identity. That the, the key to a good story is you can relate or feel some kind of empathy towards the characters, but you don't feel like, oh, this character is better or worse just because of, you know, whatever trait they have, whether they're gay or their race or any the religion, because that's another one that, funny enough, has like been swept to the wayside. Because for a while there, like especially right after 9-11, a lot of fiction and stuff was dealing with anti-Muslim sentiments. And then it was like all this religious ideology came back into fashion, where it's like, oh, if you ain't a Christian, you're a bad Muslim, and all that dumb shit. But now it's like, if you're just religious, people shit on you. Yeah, it's like you can't even be religious anymore without people just like,
0: <laughs>
1: and then like somehow they're morally better than you. And it's like, why? Why do we do that dumb shit? That that's a digression. We don't need to go into that. But right.
0: I uh, will say, I feel like there is a bit of a uh, rise in in people choosing to be spiritual or religious or you know something in that realm i feel like there like there there is a sect of our community that's beginning to do that and it's more it's more
1: accepted than it used to be i I feel more broad spectrum spirituality than straight organized religion which i agree agree. with like that's great that's way better in my opinion because organized religion gets cultish you know yeah
0: or or i think the new thing is and I, i mean this is probably becoming more common but not that it's new of the last five years or so it's probably been going on forever but i think it's becoming more common that people are going to places like churches that practice in organized religion but don't necessarily follow all of the they don't necessarily follow the that that church or that religion specifically it's just like this is my way of this is my way of getting like practicing spirituality even though i'm not like specific i'm not like considering myself part of this community
1: yeah so you can you know consider yourself even a catholic maybe but you don't hate gay people you're not telling people they can't or cannot get abortion like you're not strict on you know the deep parts of the bible that people like to cherry pick you just are like hey i like the message of being good to my neighbor and you know just living a moral life and stuff like that and i have seen a lot more of that which is good uh Because one thing, I mean, we don't have to go too deep into religion or anything, but it does actually go into the book we're reading. Mm. But what I I do always like, like what I liked about religion was the sense of community people get. I feel that's sorely lacking, especially now where you don't, people don't even talk to their neighbors hardly. So it's like, I think that is needed, maybe not, you know, religion specifically. It's shifted. Like people just find their groups now. Unfortunately, it's more nefarious ways. Like now they find their community, quote unquote, in uh, political sides. Which seems to be the big one, and it's like, oh, you're a liberal, you're a Republican, you, even more specifically, you're a Trump, or, Trumper. You're a, I don't even know what the fucking extreme left is called anymore now, but uh, you know, you get into these groups, and then it's like, I have to hate them because they're the other. Now you're going back into religious extremism. It's just your new religion has become politics, right? An ideology of uh, social standing versus spiritual, and I just don't like any of that stuff. Yeah, like so just be nice to people. Whatever, yep. I'm just being fucking nice to people. Yeah, why can't we do that? We can. We can. We can. But I do. I personally, except for in traffic, I've been getting bad. <laughs> <laughs> the, I, uh, the fucking old people, they drive so slow. <laughs> just drive fast. Drive the speed limit, even. I'm fine with the speed limit.
0: I don't even want to get, I, yeah. I, It's it's getting, it seems to be getting
1: worse. When we get to Arcade, Bookshop, Patreon, eventually, we'll have special episodes where it's just Bryce <laughs> and Caleb bitch. <it'll> and was just <laughs> a whole episode about his bitch and about things unrelated to books and games.
0: Yeah, well, it'd be special episodes you pay for to hear us complain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thought about doing
1: that with DPW. I didn't have enough listener base that would pay, but that would be fun. Just like, hey, we're just going to bitch all episode. <laughs> Give us a dollar well, you can hear it. I think that
0: the author of our book today, we could argue whether or not any of this is deliberate. I do, I do think a lot of it probably is. But just like any writer, there's speculation around whether or not this is like like the the points that are made that are you know, that scholars have drawn from the text or whether they're actually making those points or whether it's just conclusions that readers have made over time. But it seems that this is a case where it's a uh, it's an example of quality writing where you're drawn to the story. You don't necessarily need to acknowledge that there are these there are any like political points being made, any like metaphors for, you know, Grand cultural whatever. It's a it's a great story, no matter what. But I think it's a it's a good case where you can where if it is deliberate, there's so many different points, themes, and you know stuff that's ingrained in the story without ruining it, without making that the fo- the focal point of the writing, without making it essayish. Um,
1: well, what Bram Stoker was able to do is he was able to write a cool story where the setting and the characters stand out on their own merit but you understand the time period mm-hmm. so whether you're reading it when this was written or now you understand oh women were this class of citizen at this time and it just comes across without him mentioning it you just understand by, right. via their actions uh religion had this impact on the world at this time and i don't know if you got this rice but this was one of the first if not the first techno thriller techno yeah not 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 that kind of techno. It is the first, at least in my reading, uh, especially horror. It's definitely a techno horror uh, where they use science and mm, at the yeah. time modern gadgets to solve their problems. They had gramophones. They used typewriters. They had spe- you know well, rifles. Caleb,
0: today I have with me. Oh no! And I'll get to the intro in just a moment. But today I have with me this book that I uh, I brought with me from the past from my college life. It's called Literature and Science in the 19th Century, an anthology edited by Laura Otis. It's an Oxford World Classic. And it's got all these essays about literature of the 19th century and how science and scientific ideas and themes and technology started to be implemented in fiction and writing of the t- of the 19th century as as uh, techno
1: thrillers.
0: Yeah, as uh what was it called? during the 19th century when technology started it. What was it called? The
1: Industrial Revolution. Industrial Revolution.
0: Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll pull some things out of this later in the episode, but I definitely agree. It's uh, I didn't know it was the one of the first, but makes sense.
1: I don't know when H.G. Wells came about and was doing his things, but that was sci-fi. And obviously, like, Jules Verne with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, that was before this, I believe. But that was, uh, you know, again, sci-fi, so... Outside of the sci-fi genre, like just a thriller genre that uses technology, I felt was a cool contrast for the religious aspects. It balanced it. Because this mm, could be yeah. easily, which some, not some, a lot of uh, vampire fiction has been too, in my opinion, too religious heavy. It's like almost boring, you know? This follows Castlevania more of just like, yeah, fucking action and fun yeah. shit. And yeah, we have crucifixes and holy water. But I mean, I don't even remember if they said the name Jesus in this book. I don't think so. And if it was, it was just like, you know, when someone was dying a horrible death and they were blessing them or something, but it wasn't overly religious. We didn't have some pre-saving the day or anything. It wasn't like the exorcism. So I like that aspect where it's like, no, we're going to use real world technology to combat this evil, dark demon force. And I think that's cool as shit, man. Welcome to Arcade Bookshop. Where we talk about video games and their literary
0: counterparts for all of you who love to play and to read. I'm Bryce Yoli and I'm here with my pal and cousin-in-law, Caleb James. Today we're talking about Dracula by Bram Stoker after our last episode where we talked about Castlevania 1
1: and 2 and a little bit of 3. The introduction was both abrupt and startling. (laughs) (laughs) He just went real hard into it.
0: (laughs) It was so startling that it startled my train of thought right out of my head
1: you were discussing dracula and you i imagine had some opening remarks (laughs) (laughs) if you don't know the opening remarks we should just quit now
0: (laughs) well let's just dive back into what we were talking about i just wanted to get the intro done after 20 minutes of talking um you're
1: almost as bad as i am on my podcast I know. <laughs> it's like let's just I, go really long and then we should probably introduce I, us i
0: didn't think it would go that long but it's like what episode
1: 10 12 whatever episode this is they should like know who we are 15, by now I, yeah. I don't even i
0: haven't been keeping track but yeah it's there, there's just there are so many ways to talk about this book it's kind of crazy and i'll start out by saying that both of us have read this book. We didn't read it for the podcast, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's a decent size of a book, but I, I read it for my college class. I think it was, I don't know if it was my British lit class or if it was, cause I had a British lit class, but I also had a class that was mostly British lit, but was also just about, you know, it might've been called literature and science in the 19th century. Actually, I think oh. she named it after this book. Well, that's pretty boring. I, are you kidding me? It was Dracula
1: boring. Yeah, some of it.
0: It was it was cool. We talked about Dracula and like Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, right? Doctor Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. you know stuff like that, like haunting stuff, and
1: uh we read like gothic some... fiction is what you're looking for.
0: Yeah, Frankenstein. We read we didn't read Frankenstein, but we uh we did some Arthur Conan Doyle stuff. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle.
1: By the way, folks, if you want a deeper dive into this topic. Uh, you can listen to the Drunken Pen Writing Podcast. I think it was probably two years ago now for Halloween. We covered, if I think, chapter by chapter. like we I not think really. they had an episode every week on Dracula, if I remember correctly. So if you folks want to hear a shitty breakdown on that, you can listen to those episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember if we did a good job discussing that or not. Do I need to give a synopsis of Dracula? Not really, but maybe a better idea would be why we picked this as the companion to Castlevania, if it isn't too obvious. Yeah, well, vampires. Yeah, that's it. Dracula. He's the main guy.
0: <laughs> I could read the back of the book.
1: Yeah, just do that. That's quick. That's what I always do.
0: All right. Let's see. This is my copy of Dracula. It's it's a Norton Critical Edition edited by Nina Auerbach and David J. Scal.
1: To be fair, most people probably actually don't know the original story of Dracula. Bram Stoker's Dracula, they might know the movie version... The Francis Ford Coppola Dracula, which mm-hmm. is closest to the book or any of the other iterations of Dracula, like the, uh, you know, the Bella Lugosi Dracula, which most people are familiar with. Yeah. Not the same stories.
0: Right. Uh, so the back of my book says, it's not just a synopsis, but it says when it was published in 1897, Dracula became one of the many contemporary titles that pitted humans against monsters. Robert Louis Stevenson, Rudyard Kipling, and H.G. Wells, among others, all published in the same genre at about the same time. Yet, it is Dracula that readers cannot forget. The text of this Norton Critical Edition is that of the 1897 First Edition. It is fully annotated. A rich selection of background and source materials is provided in three areas. Context, including probable inspirations for Dracula and the earlier works of James Malcolm Reimer and Emily Gerard. Real quick, I don't think this is going to give a synopsis, but I'll still read it. Uh, also included are a discussion of Stoker's working notes for the novel and Dracula's Guest, the original opening chapter Dracula. Uh long story short this copy of the book is actually really cool cuz you don't just get the the Dracula story the the novel you get you get Dracula's guests which is the way the the book originally was uh o- originally opened
1: which the editor made him cut rightfully so because it doesn't fit at all
0: yeah and you get like essays and stuff on all the topics that Bram Stoker touches on and um, alludes to from the times that he, that he was writing from I remember when I had my class, uh, when we talked about this, I was like, I couldn't believe all the things that are in this book. Um, you know, I don't remember everything from it. I actually do remember it be- remember it being a little bit more boring than I thought it <laughs> than I thought it was going
1: to be. If we're going to go do a critical analysis, analysis, my main gripe with the whole book, which we covered on my podcast, was the repetitive nature. Uh, near the end where every chapter was reiterating stuff you already knew and heard. Oh yeah, because the the novel is like in
0: epistolary form. It's all letters from you different know, people. Yeah, Nina or newspaper
1: uh, clippings. Uh, I think at some point uh, w- they record on the gramophone. Is that how that works? Yeah, I think so. It's a gramophone recording. It's cool. It's a, I think it might have been the first epistolary novel I've actually read. But yeah, you get a lot of reiteration of stuff. You're like, all right, I get it. Especially near the end. But for me, one of the best opening chapters of any novel. Like, the opening, and even maybe it was the second chapter where we're in the castle. Cool as fuck. For just the people who do want the actual synopsis, you have Jonathan Harker, who, he's an English, I don't know, works for a bank or something. Uh, basically, Count Dracula wants to buy some property in England. Mm-hmm. That's what his plan is. His evil plan is actually to take over England, I believe, but we, you don't know that yet. Um, so Jonathan Harker goes to Transylvania and all the village people, they find out where he's going and they're, you know, doing the crosses on their chest and they're scared for him and all this stuff. He's like, what the fuck? Gets a really creepy stage coach. driving the coach. Uh, <laughs> takes him up. The coach can control wolves, which is, should be a giveaway just to go the fuck back. But he does it. Um, He goes there, meets Dracula, who in this version, the original Dracula, kind of gray hair, a big mustache, short, fat fingers, pointy teeth. Not the suave, bella lugosi, slick back, black hair Dracula, you know. Though he does get younger as he gets, uh, when he goes into England later and you, they see him in the street and stuff. This Dracula also does not, he's not affected by sunlight the same. He doesn't burn up. So that's not one of the things. Uh, and also, I believe instead of garlic bulbs, it's garlic flowers that they use. Mm. They hang up with garlic flowers. I don't believe it's the actual bulbs of garlic, though they could have used the bulbs too. Um, but Jonathan Harker, he's, Dracula's creepy. His castle's run down and shitty. Uh, he, he tells him, don't go to, any of these rooms and he's just like okay and Jonathan Harker's kind of an idiot for a while and then he cuts himself shaving and then Dracula comes out of nowhere and tries to like you know he freaks out because he sees the blood he's all horny for some blood and then uh fortunately Jonathan Harker had a crucifix on him and he scared him off then he realizes that guy didn't have a reflection in the mirror that's weird and then it comes to you know it pops into his head finally am I a prisoner here can I not leave he can't leave (laughs) Uh, eventually, he sees Dracula climbing down the castle like a lizard, which is one of my favorite scenes. It's so fucking cool and yeah. freaky. Uh, the be- like the beginning of this was my favorite. As it draws on, it gets a little boring, and mm-hmm. then it has cool gothic elements and ethereal atmospheres and stuff. But it does have some stuff. I, like, I don't care. Like the- Mainly the techno stuff, the science shit. I didn't care about um, Speed things up. He... There's three scary vampire ladies that try to suck his blood in the place and eat him. Uh, Dracula comes in, throws a baby at them, and they eat the baby. Horrific. Uh, eventually, Jonathan Harker just jumps out the castle into the river. He ends up in Romania where he's sick. Mina Harper, his sweetheart from England, uh, flies out there. Uh, her buddy Lucy, who's a harlot, <laughs> not a harlot, but she has a choice of uh, men. Uh, there's a whole boy group here they are after her. Uh, she picks one named Arthur. Uh, there's also Quincy Morris, the Texan, which Bram Stoker did not know how to write a Texan. Like, he didn't ever met an American, clearly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but he, he was one of the guys. And then uh, Dr. Stewart, or is it Seward? Dr. Seward, he worked at the institution for the mentally insane, where we have the famous Renfield. It's actually not that big of a deal in this book. Uh, then you get uh, Lucy, who Dracula he fills up a bunch of cat like 50 caskets full of dirt. He gets on a boat, ships himself to England. Uh, the He eats everyone on the boat, basically. Um, and then he starts feeding on Lucy, and I think she becomes the bloofer lady, which is cool. Like, they got these newspaper clippings of this creepy lady that kids are finding in the... Sem- you know, kids just wander cemeteries at night. Uh, <laughs> and she's sucking their blood. Uh, she ends up dying. A series of unfortunate events happen. Lots of blood transfusions, which at the time was new and the new technology like, four guys in a row just giving you blood transfusions does not work. There has to be blood type. Like, you can't just yeah. give blood transfusions. But th- back then you could, apparently. Um, and then another, you know, really to shorten things up, they uh, Lucy dies, Mina gets uh, sick, but they do some fancy magic and hypnotize her, and since Dracula made her drink his blood, he could see out of her eyes, and there's like a telekinesis thing. So they know where Dracula's going, they fucking go hop a pl- uh, back to his castle. Not a plane, a boat, I guess, or whatever train i think it's a series of train adventures actually uh so they go to transylvania uh oh i completely forgot the coolest character van helsing dr van helsing comes in to help with uh, lucy and mina and he's crazy as shit but he loves killing vampires apparently um Mina Harker's also an actual girl boss in this as she's the one that figures a lot of things out and is actually smart and the guys are fucking dunderheads and it's very interesting to see how that's written from this time period that they would have her be the cool one but that actually goes into the modern horror trope of you know the chast pristine uh virgin quote unquote is you know always the one who lives in horror movies you know mm-hmm. like that's the cliche is the the sex addicted teenage youths are the ones that always get killed by jason and freddie and all this stuff but it's always the good girl that lasts well that's how you know lucy was always with all these guys so she ends up uh getting killed but mina who is a good girl ends up li- living but they go back and uh van helsing he kills the vampire ladies dracula gets killed quincy morris dies and everybody lives happily ever after the end That was a little longer than I wanted to. But there are a lot of cool elements in there. Like there's scenes of beheading and lots of crucifixion, not crucifixion, crosses through the heart, stakes through the heart. And all the, like most of the typical vampire tropes are brought. Like, I don't know if Bram Stoker created them, but he definitely utilized them because he did a lot of Transylvania folklore research for this. Like a lot of, uh, uh, you know, like Vlad the Impaler was obviously one of the because uh, he was technically the Dracula, the real Dracula. So he was an inspiration. But he actually did a lot of research on uh, folklore and stuff around the area to get the vampire story. Because he wasn't the first vampire story. Right. He was just the first memorable one.
0: Do you know who were the first?
1: I have a Penny Dreadful collection over there, and it has a story called The Vampire, and I think it's spelled with a Y, and I believe that's the first one. And that, I want to say it was 1700s or maybe early 1800s. I don't know who wrote that out. Go-
0: well... Yeah, there there's I think I don't know if it's actually clear what the first vampire story was, but I know there's that one and there's there's Varney the vampire, which was I know, I'm pretty sure that came for, before Dracula, at least. I'm not sure if it was the original vampire because that's also with a Y instead of an I.
1: The consensus is John Paulden's 1819 short story, The Vampire. That's the one I said. Okay. That was uh, made into a stage play in Scotland, I believe. And that one, I mean, again, because when you get into folklore, it gets a little iffy because there's a lot of folklore that was written down around, you know, like the Grimm Brothers and stuff. So vampires were a thing for a long time. It's just who actually wrote the first story. I'm sure that guy wasn't the first, but that was probably the first popular rendition. Yeah. Right. Or one of the first popular.
0: What for you is the biggest thing that stands out for you in the in, in Dracula in terms of like, we started off talking about political themes and nuances in, in contemporary literature. What, what do you think is the most prevalent idea in Bram Stoker's writing?
1: His view on gender and sex, because I felt like it was very modern for its time. Like I said, you know, Mina was uh, the girl boss. Like, she was coming up with so many things. There was, like, she was figuring shit out. And then the mm-hmm. guys were just like, oh, if I think they even say, like, a line in the book or something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, something along the lines of, like, we would be lost without you, you know, something like that. It's like, basically, they couldn't have done any of, the even Helsing, Van Helsing, they couldn't right. have done what they were doing and get Dracula without her assistance. Like, she was the, the catalyst for being able to figure all this stuff out. And but she was it, a strong character.
0: Maybe I'm wrong about this and remembering incorrectly, but doesn't isn't part of her intelligence because she's linked to Dracula
1: that's later on when they use it because they hypnotize her and they're able to yeah because Dracula could see out of her eye he used right. her as a spy but before that even she was figuring stuff out mm-hmm. and then because yeah. she was just a
0: smart person I guess, yeah but her character
1: but then when she was taken over by Dracula she was basically tricking Jack Dracula she was like hey you know, I know this fucker could see what I'm seeing and he's using me, so how could we use that to get him? And that's, you know, again, I I don't know if that was exactly her idea from the get-go, but I'm pretty sure she, well, I know she was willing to do it, but uh, she was all in on getting this guy. Like, she was uh, the original, what is it, Sydney from Scream? Yeah, yeah. She's like the original badass chick, at least in my opinion, I, that's what I got from it. Uh, What about you?
0: I think I tend to look at, when I read literature, I tend to look at it, from a broader view i guess i definitely pick up on the the gender stuff a little bit but it's not my first instinct especially when i'm reading this just like enjoying the story for the most part i I look at the events and stuff more than the characters i guess which is kind of the opposite of the point of literature but (laughs) (laughs) but i think it's both in my critical edition and in my literature and science the 19th century book they talk a lot about what was going on in terms of like British culture and like the actual British Empire at the time. Mm-hmm. And what something like Dracula represents, what a creature like that represents as a threat to the empire and the community when they're trying to grow and the, and it's like a it's like a parasite to the endeavors of the country. So a, a, a word that actually I have a, I have a variety of words that variety <laughs> that, words that go that go for this you go in with this uh idea but So the first one is atavism or atavism or something like that. Have you heard of that? No. Uh, It's the reversion to ancient things. So uh, at this point in British history, it's uh, like like the Industrial Revolution and stuff. They've they've colonized. uh, The community is like bolstering. It's getting bigger and more about business. And like they're, they're, they just keep going up. And then, but underneath that, there's always the threat of things going sour and things, something evil or parasitic, like a monster or a Dracula or something equivalent to a Dracula coming to ruin it all. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the real thing behind that is just people like, the, the poor people that actually result from the industrial revolution and, and this is mostly in fiction but like the creatures that are products of that kind of progress and uh, another idea that comes out of that is the idea of like degeneration so th- we've, they've worked so so hard to, be, to get where they've gone and they start getting nervous and worried that there's going to be people who threaten that like purity they've they've found. And yeah. and uh and that's like 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 think of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Because th- Mr. Hyde's the dark one, right? The, yeah. Yeah. So like Dr. Jekyll is a doctor. He's like reputable and all this stuff. But then he also has this dark side that's like tainting mm. tainting the community and murderous and gruesome and ruining the reputation uh, that they've worked so hard to achieve. I don't know if any of that resonates with you. I have more but I am going on.
1: Well the story I mean it's a not a timeless story, but anytime there's a major change in society, so the Industrial Revolution, the modern technological revolution, even if you go to the Renaissance period, you always have stories because, it, like you said, it, it sprouts up from fear. So you're going to have the fear of change, of what's to come and what's new, and then also the fear of reverting back to what was previous or degrading. So if you have, say, in th- in this case... You know, England's growing, but they're not, at the time of this story, the worldwide dominant force they once were. So they're focusing on this industrial revolution of building up a different kind of enterprise. So instead of taking over countries and making their money that way, now they're going to make it through, uh, you know, fabrication. And uh, everything was dirty in England at this time, by the way. Everything was black and soot-colored. and ugh. But So you had... And obviously, this goes into classism, too. So you think of Dickens and, you know, Tale of Two Cities and things like that. So you have the lower class, the working labor class, who are actually making all this possible. And then you have the higher-up rich class. But the rich class, they fear that something is going to stall the progression. It's going to stall, and they're going to revert back to not being paupers because they probably weren't poor to begin with. But for some reason, there's always this fear that things will go back to the old times and everyone will be more equal and then we won't be so rich. Whereas the working class, they fear the progression because, oh, we're working in factories and things really suck. If this keeps expanding, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And that's when the two ideologies always butt heads. And then you have kind of a revolution. So when you get stories like this, you always get, like you said, the parasitic, what's coming in to? take us back to what was old and then you also have the what was old um you know might have not been good we need to keep moving forward and this like like i said the techno thriller so you have the technology is saving the day but at the same time i don't know if this actually goes back to wanting to like stop progress i don't know if this is that kind of story because i like what i got from it is dracula represents the old the ancient that's trying to you know, take over England and bring back whatever his fucking evil domain is, his, uh, his worldview and how he controls things. So that would be the olden times. And it's like a story of how progress is going to save the day. Uh, that's what I got from it anyway.
0: I mean, when you think of England at this time, I think it was still very, very much one type of person uh, or one type of people. I mean, you know, like economics aside... But eventually, like because of the Industrial Revolution, I think. I mean, I I, mean, I don't know history very well, but I I'm I'm pretty sure that around this time was when England started to become more of their more of like how the U.S. is like a uh, uh, melting pot, like yeah, they started to get more of a variety in their culture and their their
1: uh, which they also fought against, right? Well, so people, it's like, some people fought against.
0: So that's what I see the whole dracula thing being uh, you do get
1: a a undertone of like saving the purity of the race for in this instance it's the english exactly you know we say we got to save you know mother england it's got to stay the same we can't have these outside forces
0: right and like i i see that because like the parts in the middle of the book or towards the end probably I, i can't remember exactly where it is but when dracula leaves the castle and goes to london and he, is, and he starts messing with the, the women and stuff like that. So that's, I guess that's where I'm like getting the, the parasitic idea from, mm-hmm. uh, cause he's going there manipulating everybody in, in London when they're all just trying to like build, build everything up. And this is where I like that the writing is so focused on the story more than anything else. Cause that's the way I write it. That's the way fiction should be mm-hmm. because you don't necessarily have to pick up on that, but it's cool if you can't, if you do. Because it's there, and there's evidence. There's evidence that it is there. That it might may have been deliberate. I don't know if he's ever spoken on it or anything. But then you can also think about how, uh, like, in terms of like the generation, how Mina uh, had to get all the the transfusions and everything. Like she's the smartest person in the book, and then Dracula messes with her, and she's and she needs transfusions to survive. And then she gets like four other yeah. dumb guys' blood in her body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which scientifically would probably kill her.
1: Well, yeah, but, you know, just as a metaphor, the uneducated class has to yeah. hold up the smarter, <laughs> the right. more intelligent class that runs things. So she needed dumb guy blood. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know what yeah. I liked about fiction from this time period, though, like the English fiction, was that it always touched on barbarism. Like, mm-hmm. you think of, like, Robert E. Howard's work where he goes full on barbarism, but basically, you know, you have Dracula who's just, you know, he's just the evil force. He's coming, he's wrecking shit, he's taking women, he's just doing whatever he wants. So he is the barber, or the, the barbarian. He is the uh, barbarism the incarnate. Yeah, he's the barber. He did get a nice haircut <laughs> eventually. He does a wonderful job. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just don't let him cut you on accident. He'll suck on your neck for a long time. But you have that that is always a stark contract with any contrast with any of these English from Dickens till just anything up through the early 1900s is just the fact that you have this like you know the snobby classy like I'm a businessman you can't pull my pants down like you know you can't there's just such a strict way to live and actually it probably started even in like Victorian England but it kind of mellowed out but it's just even to this day the English have this kind of attitude where it's like you know, I wear a suit and tie. I have to, even though most people probably don't anymore, but still just like that idea, that idea of having to be like, a certain level of class you have to always keep and maintain at all times, mm-hmm. But then you got Dracula just coming in stunting with his pimp hat and he looks classy, <laughs> but he's just sucking blood and turning into wolves and weird shit. And it's just like, no, oh, this guy's just completely disrupting your fake bullshit existence that you're right. just trying to manufacture. It's like people <laughs> that just like act like like it's the time periods Like people didn't poop that, you know, Yeah. It's like, oh, <laughs> we don't, we don't talk about nasty things like that. We don't, they, they, their are animal instincts. They have to, you know, that's why, like, Jack the Ripper is so famous and mm-hmm. becomes such a thing is because your animalistic instincts, they they push down so far that they act like it just didn't exist, but then yeah. you have, like, the barbarism of fucking Dracula coming in and just unfolding everything. But that's, like, most of the stories at that time. Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde, he's a doctor. He's sophisticated. He's smart. He does everything the way you're supposed to. But well, then Mr. Hyde's a crass, dirty asshole. And <laughs> it's like, I love those <laughs> stories. Like, they're great that they just... uh I don't know, they just always capture my imagination because I just always picture these snooty people and then somebody just comes yeah. and pies them in the face, you know? <laughs> Except for a pies and axe. Like, <laughs> or a dirty, dirty vampire. Uh, wonderful.
0: Yeah, and uh, from there, I guess we could... I don't know if you want to, but we could talk about sexuality and gender uh, more if you wanted to. I, Because I know like, I know there's actually an essay in my critical edition about feminism.
1: Mm, well... So one of the main themes of this book, are, which we still use in horror to this day, uh, the aversion to lust and perversion. I didn't mean to rhyme there. Uh, so lust and perversion, uh, and it, obviously in this time it's like very minimal. It's not overtly sexual or anything, but you, know, you think of your Friday the 13th, it's always really raunchy, but back then it was done in a classier way. But the, the, the themes of that is like, Dracula represents the perversion of man and, you know, man's nature, uh, how man fights against his baser, I had discussed earlier, his basic animalistic nature. And Dracula, he's, he is one who just does whatever he wants and seduces women and feeds on women, literally. Uh, he represents that perversion that we, as a uh, sophisticated society, uh, civilized society have overcome supposedly but it's always there under just underneath the skin is this i need to do some bad shit that even goes back to like the you know the all the classic biblical stories like adam and eve and everything like that because there is a lot of religious overtones in this though like i said before i love how it's not overtly in your face but yeah, you get a lot of those uh, sexualized natures and how that's, it's bad, okay? Bad stuff should be <laughs> okay. doing <it>, Adam okay? <laughs> uh, um, Curry.
0: Have you ever heard of, well, I didn't want to go too far away from the sexuality thing, right? But have you ever heard of the term physiognomy or physiognomy?
1: Yeah, it's a word I always read and never could say out loud.
0: Okay. Um, that was something that struck me like super, I don't want to say racist, but it, I mean, in, in some terms it is. It, it's definitely like uh proven to be incorrect, like scientifically disproven. Um, but
1: what, like, like women having smaller brains and stuff, just people in general, yeah, right.
0: like the the shape. I think physiognomy specifically is the shape of someone's skull determining their personality, and right. the shape of their face, the look of their face, and everything. You know, the, this part in particular, uh, I I think it more addresses the idea of like Dracula, I guess, as a monster that represents something larger in the community or in the the patriarchy yeah uh like the i'm reading from the literature and science in the 19th century book and this is stuff that i underlined when i was reading it for college but so this this paragraph says if we examine a number of criminals we shall find that they exhibit numerous anomalies in the face skeleton and various psychic and sensitive functions So that they strongly resemble primitive races. (laughs) It was these anomalies that first drew my father's attention. I'm not sure who's what they're talking about, but drew my father's attention to the close relationship between the criminal and the savage and made him suspect that criminal tendencies are of atavistic origin.
1: There's still people who believe that nonsense, too.
0: Yeah, I know. It's...
1: uh, I mean, there's a a subsect of science that, because you said, like, about racism... Where they thought Africans were actually stupider, you know, just less intelligent because of how their face shape was, mm-hmm. and like, you know, I don't know if they tried to compare them to cavemen or whatever, but, uh, and I want to say maybe some uh, like Mongolian sex and stuff like that. It's like, oh, because they look this way, they're obviously inferior beings. They're stupid. <laughs> it's, like, it's, just, it's like it doesn't make any sense. Usually, it's just because they're, you know, living a village or a tribe, and they're just not educated to modern you know levels but that doesn't mean they're stupid by any means that doesn't mean they're less intelligent or incapable of learning but that's the way that they viewed those people and you still have like white supremacists and stuff that think that way
0: right and i think it goes into like how you were talking about the culture being like pretending that pretending that our basic animal instincts our animal uh, animal instinct kind of thing like those things pretending those things aren't there it's kind of like that fear of the other thing that was prevalent this time also. And I, I think this, I wish I had read, actually reread this and mm-hmm. or had the time to do that. But just, I mean, thinking back on it, it's that you can think of when Dracula is back it, when he's in London or even when you're looking at the different characters that are like pursuing uh, Lucy or whatever, you know, and the people that that gave blood to Mina, the those guys because one of those guys was the that was his name
1: quentin 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 morris the texan yeah
0: yeah he's a foreigner for because for, he's an, you know he's an american in london you know the whole the whole face shape thing the the, the uncom this with uh, of people who look different and who you y- are unpredictable uh you don't see them very often because... Quincy Morris, not Quincy. Yeah, yeah, I got Quentin on the brink. He, and
1: the sound I, th- of the yeah, exact same I, thing. I was like, that, that's not right.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: I was going to say Percy, I was like, that's not Harry Potter. I hope uh, I didn't say Quentin at the beginning when I gave my synopsis, but I think I did. <laughs> whatever. Quincy's a stupid name anyway. <laughs> it's definitely not a Texas I was going to say.
0: <laughs> but, you know, the whole, it, it, it goes into the whole, with the whole, like, being uncomfortable, being around people that you aren't familiar with, people who aren't high-class, pretending to be high-class. And there's more that goes into the to describing these types of people as monsters. Jesus. Um, <laughs> so this is another paragraph. Um, it's going to cut in. You're not going to understand it right away, but thus was explained the origin of the enormous jaws, strong canines, prominent zygomai, and <laughs> I'm not saying that right, and strongly developed orbital arches, which he had so frequently remarked in criminals for these peculiarities are common to carnivores and savages who tear and devour raw flesh.
1: That's a lot more eloquent than the traditional sloping forehead slack jaw, you know, like they they do in a lot of old fiction.
0: Thus also it was easy to understand why the span of the arms in criminals so often exceeds the height, (laughs) for this is characteristic of apes whose forelimbs forelimbs are used in walking and climbing. The other anomalies exhibited by criminals, the scanty beard as opposed to the general hairiness of the body, prehensile foot, diminished number of lines in the palm of the hand, cheek pouches, enormous development of of the middle incisors and frequent absence of the lateral ones, flattened nose, and angular or sugarloaf form of the skull. Sugarloaf form of the skull. (laughs) 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 Uh, Common to criminals and apes, the excessive size of the orbits. Oh my gosh. It just goes on and on. on It's like, it's just so much. (laughs) And it goes on to talk about born criminals. Uh, Yeah, it's just
1: so basically, if you look in, at xenophobic. all ape, yeah, if you look at all ape-like or just non-traditional white person, you are exactly a monster, a criminal, uh, a vagrant of ill intent. You know, any any number of adjectives can be thrown in there, probably. Well, obviously, like, fucking endless <laughs> descriptors. Sugar loaf, though. What does a sugar loaf look like?
0: I don't know. I have no picture in my head of what that is. Bread?
1: <laughs> Let me look that up. Bread head? Sh- sugar loaf. It is a food stuff. Let's see what we got. That can't be right. That looks like a big phallus. <laughs> Are their heads looking like giant phallus? Oh, show me a mountain. <laughs> sugar loaf food. Do that. It still looks like a big phallus. <laughs> Here's the uh, the less wiener like looking one. There's a traditional. So their head. Yeah, oh, I guess I so can. like. A- like- a when cone... people say
0: your head comes to a point or something like
1: that. Yeah, almost like a cone head. That's what a sugar loaf apparently was. Yeah, uh, that's so weird. I would have never say. thought that was a food. That looks like one of those incense things. Like the, yeah. Not the sticks, but the... the cones. Yeah. A yeah. sugar loaf. I kind of want a sugar loaf now. <laughs> I wonder how you make Too late. Anyway, we
0: were talking about sexuality for a minute. I don't know if you care about that anymore. But
1: I mean, if you had some... I don't have much to discuss on that. Okay. Uh, there was an Bram essay. Bram Stoker might have been gay. It, talk I, about that. I, I forgot about that. Let's hear. I don't know why. I just i there's one thing in my very vague research uh, that stuck in my brain was that apparently Bar- Bram Stoker might have been gay.
0: What's the evidence?
1: I don't know. Maybe he had letters to a lover or something. But they always said everyone was gay back then. Mm-hmm. Like any time. I don't know if that's like a modern thing we're throwing on old writers. But even going back to let's say like Moby Dick, apparently man snuggling was a thing that was popular. A long time ago maybe because there wasn't heat like you know if you just go to bed with your buddy like you're just like i don't know if they're actually holding each other but like you know very close to another man and it's fine it's just body heat and just like different aspects that we would consider gay now or homo erotic behavior back then might you know like maybe kissing a man to say hello or something i don't know if that's an example but that would be something that like oh that wasn't weird back then you know how it used to be you dress boys in pink it was fine. That wasn't considered gay. and Then it's, you know, blue was the gay color. Then it switched. But mm. where am I going? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so basically, uh, I don't know what the evidence that Bram Stoker was gay, but they said he was. And a lot of guys back then, especially writers, wrote very gay uh, letters to their friends, but they weren't actually gay. They just sounded <laughs> like, I love you and I miss you. And, you know, just things that were like, that sounds kind of gay. Like, that's your lover. <laughs> but that doesn't mean they're actually lovers so i don't yeah. know if bram stoker was a gay man. i don't know what evidence uh, i don't know if you looked up any evidence well I, not specifically
0: um i know he worked at um a theater i i think while he was writing this
1: so that doesn't help his cause but then does that mean shakespeare was a gay man
0: uh, i feel like i've heard something about that maybe not though I they don't know. even
1: know shakespeare was real but they're gonna say he's a gay man
0: oh that's probably a good <laughs> anyone point. who works uh-huh. in the theaters gay so i mean it, it checks out
1: <laughs> oh this just straight up says Stoker himself was a closeted gay man who pined for affection from both, both his friends, mentors, and possible lovers, Oscar Wilde and Walt Whitman. Well, Whitman was wait, gay too? That's a... Our, my that's time a, is... That's from Salon.
0: What was... Wait, when was Walt Whitman... When, when was Walt Whitman
1: around? During Bram Stoker's life? It was the same time?
0: Yeah, yep. I guess it was. It was like the 1812 version of uh, Leaves of Grass. That, yeah. That is like the original one. That's weird. I, I for some reason I was thinking Walt Whitman was older than that, like from a different time. Yeah, but I actually read that I think he got <laughs> I think he got inspiration from watching the women who the, like the the actresses at the theater. Yeah. Um I think he was in inspi- he, he got inspiration from the way they acted about certain things <laughs> for the way the way the women started acting like when they were affected by Dracula. Mhm. Like, their rage and stuff. Because <laughs> I, I, I think I think they, like, got screwed over with bad roles all the time. Uh-huh. And they would just, they would do them because they had to. And then they just, like, get, like, super, like, monstrously pissed. And I think he used that as... <laughs> See, that, that's where it's, like, it, it's, like, he talks about a lot of, like, very progressive points. But there's also a degree where the progressiveness back then is a little bit different. Because it was very dated. Uh, yeah, it's like still kind of new, and he's like being progressive, but nowadays it would you'd be like a bigot, uh, yeah, or like,
1: like racist or misogynistic or just any of the.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess he's just like like he took their rage and made them sound, uh, use that for the characters, turned into monsters from Dracula.
1: Nice. Can I read some of these article headlines? Because they're pretty hilarious. Yeah. Here's mediums: the queer life of Bram Stoker. Uh, that's basic. Here's Salon. The queer horror of Dracula. Tumblr, I like this one. It's my favorite. So just how gay was Bram Stoker? <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Reddit, it's just straight up. That Bram Stoker, author of Dracula, was a closeted homosexual. <laughs> um, Project Muse. A wild desire took me. Wild as an Oscar Wilde. The homoerotic history of Dracula. Ooh, this is a good one. Film Days. Queer coding in Bram Stoker's Dracula. So, And these are all about... 2021 to 2022 these articles came mm-hmm. out. So there must have been a gay Bram Stoker renaissance. So people just want him to be super gay at and some this point. this is
0: where it just pisses me off because like I'm fine with him being gay. I don't care. That's great.
1: But somehow that makes Dracula better. Yeah. Like, that makes the story of you're Dracula. You're insulting some,
0: the history of, because I don't think he wanted that to come out. Well, yeah, that's the,
1: the thing. If he was a closeted gay yeah, man. Yeah, he did
0: not want that to be part of the book.
1: Yeah, so all the stuff that is making Dracula awesome now and people are digging and finding in Dracula about, you know, pro queerness and all this stuff. It wasn't supposed to be there because obviously a closeted gay man's not going to put that in there and out himself. So yeah. you're just reading into it and it's not there. It's not meant to be there
0: yeah it's just frustrating it's uh, and that's where i
1: that's no better than saying you know finding out an author said some racist shit so you go through their work and try to find any instance that will prove they're racist even if it's not there like you just oh they got to be racist because they believe this even though it's a character again they're fictional characters not the author none of these are the author they Mm -hmm. might share the author's opinions but usually especially in the case of dracula not (laughs) yeah so I, i hate when people do that it's really irritating because I always think, like, what if I have a story come out and I have a racist character and they're going to think I'm racist because the character is racist? That's stupid.
0: Yeah. And I'm sure everyone could argue, and they probably do, that, that, like, he would have liked to be able to be open about it. Yeah. And maybe he's being subtle in a way that he knew wouldn't, wouldn't immediately come out uh, as, like.
1: But if he was obsessed with Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde was. Arrested for being, you know, yeah, what did they true. call that back then? Not delinquency, degeneracy or probably yeah, perversion word, yeah. or something. Yeah. But basically just being gay, you got arrested for being gay. Yeah. But he was not shy about who he was. So it's not like Bram Stoker didn't have. Oh, shit. It's not- Bryce got a drinking problem over there. He just dumped <laughs> beer all over him. But it's not like uh, Jeez, Bram Christ. Stoker didn't have a model for how to behave if he wanted to be out or as out as you could be at that time without being lynched. But still, it's just like, I don't think people need to be diving so deep into the work and try to, like, pull stuff that's not there. Yeah. And, and I didn't not, read any of these articles. Maybe they make very good, valid points. Maybe I'm wrong and Bram Stoker hit a bunch of gay stuff in there. I just didn't get it personally.
0: Yeah. I didn't. I mean, the only thing you could say is, you could talk about, did Dracula, I don't remember, did Dracula bite Jonathan? No. I don't think so. Because it was the, the succubi that did that. I, women. Didn't,
1: I didn't think anyone bit Jonathan, did they? I'm always confused because so in Dracula, the original universe, you do not become a vampire when you get bit. You only become a vampire when you suck the blood of a vampire, right? Or you die from being sucked upon too much. I think so. So you could be bit and just, like, lose blood but still be okay? It's not like, you know...
0: Yeah, because Mina ended up being... Well... She only started turning. She started
1: turning towards the end,
0: but I. uh, So this is where I'm like, I, I mixing up. But it was
1: almost like she was possessed because once Dracula died, she went back to normal.
0: Right, and this is where I'm mixing up the movie and the book a little bit, and I'm not sure where I'm like.
1: Well, I know Lucy was growing teeth near the end, and then she obviously died and came back as a vampire. So I don't know if it's like an infection; it's never explained.
0: But I remember that uh, Mina didn't. I remember in the movie that Mina didn't she like got feverish but she didn't start changing in any way until she because she did drink some of his blood right yeah he made her like drink cut his-, his cut his body or whatever and put her head to it it's gross yeah yeah i know that's different i'm pretty sure that he didn't bite jonathan i think he was attracted to his blood and then he got you know you he, he said earlier he got like shoved away by the crucifix and everything and uh later on jonathan ended up Going into that room where the succubi were, the three uh, mm-hmm. vampire women. I think that's where he did get bitten, and uh,
1: then he threw that. You ba- got Dracula threw a baby in. them. Yeah, I don't remember that, but I. Th- I yeah, mean, he threw a baby in there, and then they went for the baby, and I was like, Ew. and he's like, get out of here, bitches, and I was like, whoa, yeah. Dracula, you're <laughs> harsh, dude. But I don't remember what happens to Jonathan after that. He jumps out of a window and lands in a river, and goes gets real sick, and goes into some hospital in Romania.
0: Oh, he goes to a hospital?
1: I don't know how they recovered his journal. I guess it was just on him.
0: So I don't remember how he gets... I I feel terrible not remembering half of the story and doing the podcast about it, but uh, I don't remember. I'm almost certain they bit him. I don't remember how he recovered from that unless it was just a case. in the hospital. Yeah, but you can't just recover by going to the hospital from... Did Van Van
1: Helsing visit him? Maybe. I think he probably did, but
0: I don't know if that just resolved it just like
1: that. Well, I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly. So he gets bit by one of the women. He gets a real bad case of syphilis, uh, and that was incurable at the time. So I think he just probably eventually died of syphilis, like a, <laughs> twenty years later. There's a
0: happy ending here, though.
1: Yeah, for, I mean, but we didn't see what happened after all that stuff. We didn't see the, you know, PTSD. yeah, but we're talking about the
0: story as it's as the, in the text okay. that we're given.
1: Well, yeah. as the text that was given. Jonathan had a bad case of syphilis, but he didn't know it because it was dormant for the time being because he was bitten by vampires, and they're very gross. <laughs> they bite anybody, just saying. And then... In the know.
0: text that we're given, we know that he has syphilis.
1: Oh, big time. Big time. <laughs> and then, about? obviously, Mina's going to get it. Well, she already got because <laughs> she got bit by Dracula, but she would have got it regardless because she's with Jonathan. Probably on their wedding night. I don't think syphilis is actually mentioned in here. Uh, I was going to say, when did that even come around? Oh, it was big. Tuberculosis was big, too. The consumption... Yeah the, the uh, fainting woman's disease, I think they called it. <laughs> <laughs> I like think women would get tuberculosis and faint and they're just like, yeah, damn women. <laughs> Always fainting. There had to be a, some kind of allegory for syphilis. How do you spell syphilis? Sif. S-Y. <laughs> S-Y- I F- spelled it right. Get off mic. How Dracula draws on our biggest health fears. The fact that Dracula particularly targeted female victims adds a sexual element to the mix. It may, cannot, may connote the spread of syphilis. I knew that I remember actually reading though that there was like, supposed to be a connection made about, you know, syphilis, because that was something that a lot of people were dying from and suffering from at the time, because there was no cure, and, you know, Dracula, being the dirty man he was, it goes with the perversion and the lust. How if you're not chaste and do all that's right and only have sex with your partner after you're married, you will get syphilis and you will die, and somebody will bite your neck. So there's just as many, uh, if not more, articles about dracula and syphilis than there was on gay bram stoker interesting apparently there was a lot of syphilis uh being written about it the contagious disease act originally issued in 1864 enforced strict regulations that any woman suspected of infection would undergo a violating and painful medical examination which was a horrific invasion of the female body the government's attempt to control the spread of venereal disease resulted in widespread genital inspection in Dracula, medical oh, examination dangerously hovers on the moral boundary of woman being undressed scientifically versus that of an erotic and perverted manner. So, uh, yeah, that was a big component of the book that I totally missed. I don't remember the syphilis stuff no, at all. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't either. I wasn't making, I mean, I kind of brief, like I briefly thought about it as jokes, but I didn't think that was actually a big component of the book. But it makes sense, especially with all the scientific yeah. testing yeah, yeah, and definitely. All the uh, examination. There's a lot of examining and transfusions and shit, too. So. Mm. That dirty Van Helsing, he was up in there a lot. He was doing a lot of, di- I'm going to go check on the patient. You just checked on her. I'm going to check on her. He walks upstairs on buckling his belt. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think belt buckles were invented.
0: Either. Oh, yeah. Industrial re- revolution. They didn't figure out belt buckles
1: yet. Actually, I think they did invent belt <laughs> buckles, but they did not have the loops on the pants. Oh, is that true? Yeah, I'm pretty sure belt buckles were invented before pant loops. Did you? 1922, the belt loop was invented.
0: Oh, so yeah, afterwards. That's crazy.
1: What an inconvenience. (laughs) (laughs) My belt keeps going up over my pants. As they always say, (laughs) the belt holds up your pants, but the pants hold up your belt. (laughs) <laughs> do they it, say that yeah it works together <laughs> that is the I'm pretty sure I might be incorrect but I'm pretty sure that was always the selling point of belts and pants together <laughs> big belt and big pants they uh had a collaboration a long time ago and it's been going gangbusters
0: you can't have one without the other well you can
1: yeah obviously for a long time they did <laughs> and it was probably really irritating <laughs> could you I'm gonna do that one day. I'm just gonna put my belt over my pants and see how well it holds it up <laughs>
0: Uh th- before we end this show I want to talk at all about Dracula's guest the introduction that was originally in the beginning. I didn't read it. Oh, you didn't read it at all?
1: No, I started to and I was like this is stupid. And I read about it and it was just doesn't go- it- they said not only was it cut because it didn't really go along with Dracula. It's written in a different style, but it also just didn't fit with any part of the lore, really. Like, I think it's Jonathan Harker in a cemetery or something. And it doesn't even work as like a standalone story either. Hmm. Like, it's just not, I don't know. It just wasn't good, I guess. I'm like skimming it right now.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It looks like they're kind of referring to the land around where the castle is. Yeah. And I
1: don't know, the the superstition around all of it. It just works way better when Jonathan Harker arrives in Transylvania yeah. and goes to Dracula's castle. Uh that's a lot better than him wandering around for endless amount of time beforehand. Yeah. Like why like, is he in a cemetery? Does not mm-hmm. make sense?
0: It does sort of remind me of <laughs> the segue between uh Castlevania one and two. Yeah. Like the that little bit of information you get like from the from the manual or whatever. I don't know. My, in my skimming just now, it's what it sounded like, but I didn't read it, so I could oh, just be pulling that out of my ass.
1: Probably. Yeah. Well, so, how about we end the episode on a better note? Our likes and dislikes of the book and our official rating. Yeah. Um, I gave I gave this a solid four out of five. I, I liked this. I
0: thought you were going to say four out of ten. <laughs> no. I liked it when I read it. It was definitely, and honestly, reading <laughs> getting to read Dracula in a college course was pretty fucking awesome. I do get held back by the the boring letters. Yeah, right? like because it's
1: an epistolary novel. And like, you know, we didn't so- actually discuss this. I'm pretty sure I discussed it when I covered this book, but I was always very interested in I would say fiction before 1920. It was usually very established who was telling the story or how the story came to be. So in this case, you get the story through letters. Like it had to be realistic frankenstein Mm -hmm. there were letters and stuff like there always had to be some kind of way the story is getting to the reader Uh, hey i am the narrator and i am telling you the story or oh i found a document and here's the story
0: yeah like these letters are all they're all being read by jonathan hart like the letters and the the gramophone recordings of van helsing and stuff they're like being everything's being interpreted through jonathan harker right
1: yeah so you have to know as the reader uh, who is writing these letters or who is telling the story and even to a degree sometimes who is receiving the story. So modern fiction, we don't worry about that. And I always like catch myself like, wait, if people read the story, are they going to wonder who the fuck's telling the story? Yeah. Because there's no narrator really. It's just me as the author writing a story. And I don't think about it. But then I was like, well, well, calm down. Most people do this now. But it always yeah. throws me off because I'm like, they're gonna think I'm a phony because they don't know who's telling the story. How did the story came to be like come to right. be? But it does help with the immersion when you know like where it who's does. telling the story. But it's hard to do that now, I think. Without sounding kinda hokey or using one of these devices that have been done a million times. I know, is you don't
0: wanna be like gimmicky, but you also you also don't want to be like we were talking about earlier. You don't want to be one of those people who's writing things like everybody else is yeah. in a way that's that ends up being ultimately not very interesting.
1: But then right? you see what happens, like off-putting. with the movie genre, where the found footage movies, like, oh, th- this movie exists because we found footage, and then it got so oversaturated, yeah, just stupid. Exactly, and it sucked. You could do the same thing with epistolary or any other form of writing. It's just very hard to get a nice, unique tale. Hold under your belt without sounding like everyone else yeah if you were trying to use one of these methods or you could just have the unreliable narrative i mean we don't have to go into all that stuff but it's just i always think that was very like interesting how yeah. old-timey books it was like classic lit it is very established who is telling you the story and how the story came to be
0: you know what you should do you should do something that nobody else has ever done before when you're writing and uh make it more interesting
1: i was actually thinking about that earlier today it was like how could i create a new genre <laughs> that seems a little lofty but maybe just telling a story that hasn't been told in a certain way how, how? well everything's been told yeah even books that like i'm pretty sure there's whole novels written in text form now
0: you know what i worry about that i i, I feel like we shouldn't even go into but i'm gonna do it because i already started talking <laughs> what the, the paranoid in me says that so i've always heard this whole thing about how everything is a remake and there's like a youtube series called everything's a remake Uh and uh everybody says that every story has been told by shakespeare already true like and everything is just a variation of a shakespearean drama
1: which was probably a variation of a greek drama
0: right so that that's implying that everything has already been done So and better not not that yeah not that anyone's like giving up or anything but what if they keep telling us what if the propaganda (laughs) is is big lit (laughs) big lit (laughs) big lit (laughs) lit, (laughs) is that everything is a remix but in reality that's just giving us the mindset that everything is a remix when in reality there are there are topics and methods of writing that we just decide subconsciously. Not even to explore because we think that everything has already been done.
1: I mean, all you have to do is read the work of David Foster Wallace, Alan Moore, um, Daniel Lewski, who did House of Leaves. Those, just those three guys right there, you read their work, you see, oh, there's still things being written. Or well, in the case of uh, David Foster Wallace, he's, he's deceased, but, you know, things are still being written or have been written recently that are completely different from anything that's existed. So, you can still do it. Like, House of Leaves, especially, I'd never, before that, i never read a book like that. That's true. Never heard of, you know, seen a story like that. You can say maybe it's garbage or it's annoying, but it's different, which is very important. Alan Moore, like I said, he, he does a lot of, in all his fiction, anyway, uh, I think it's all written in different ways, and granted, he's doing a lot of remixing himself on it for James Joyce and probably Shakespeare, but he at least puts his own unique twist on it, but you could do your own thing. You could do something different. You know who I go with? I, have to look. I always forget this guy's name. But a, a writer I recently, I think last year or a year before, picked up some of his books was Paul Jameson. He has a book called Life of Maggot I read. And it's written in a post-apocalyptic medieval style <laughs> with a lot of Celtic fairy tale or fairy style fiction. And I'd never read anything like that before. And he has another book, which actually it came out before. Uh, I think it's called Bell Jar or *Nightjar*. I think it's called Night Jar. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's called Nightjar. I haven't read that one yet, but I think it's written in the same way. I was like, oh, this is a guy I found. I think he's just an indie author, but like I really like enjoyed Life of Maggot because I never read anything like that before. And it's like, oh, here's a guy that's actually writing in a style, especially in a, a contemporary writer who's writing in a style I've never read before. Not saying that a style might not have existed. like somebody else might have read, you know, written stuff like that. but, As far as me reading, I've never come across that. So that gave me hope and inspired me to think there's still things and ways you can write and things you can write about that haven't been done yet. Uh, You just have to really dig deep and, you know, mainly if you just find your own unique author's voice, that usually helps because nobody's going to write like you if you're honest with yourself because you're the only you. Right. Unless you got a twin, a genetic twin.
0: What do you think Bram Stoker does uniquely that nobody else does?
1: I mean, it's hard to say because there's so many imitators after him. But if you just go or up at to the an, time. Yeah, yeah, at the time, atmosphere, I would say Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was atmospheric, but not. I don't think like this. Uh, it's hard because I haven't read a lot of the the f- horror and stuff at the time that came out at that time. Or but, do you think
0: he didn't do it? Didn't like make a any super unique about his style?
1: Uh, if you read this. Like, just, a, I don't know, say you read a chapter of this and a chapter of any other Victorian horror or gothic horror, it probably doesn't stand out as something unique, in my opinion. Like, Edgar Allan Poe, you read that, you're like, that's unique, that's Poe, like, yeah. you know... But if I read Bram Stoker and you didn't tell me it was Bram Stoker and I didn't have the name Dracula or any of the characters, I'd be like, I don't know who wrote this. Yeah. And
0: I don't think he really had anything else that... Nothing.
1: I mean, I think he had other work, but it wasn't anything that... Like, Mary Shelley wasn't anything people cared about. Right. A lot of the writers of that era were writing like the other writers of that era. It was more about the style, which is why you had a lot of people... Uh, come along and do away with the flowery prose and the very strict way of writing, like we talked about the epistolary and who's telling the story. We had a lot of, the postmodern movement basically is like, hey, I'm going to tell a story however the fuck I want. I'm going to be a you know Bill Fuckner and just have stream of consciousness <laughs> upon stream of consciousness. I'll be a James Joyce and have a whole book that it took 17 years to write and nobody can read it. I like, just <laughs> do stupid shit like that. But at the time, other than Edgar Allan Poe, And even him, he was inspired by Lord Byron, I think. So he was probably writing a lot of his stuff uh, in the vein of someone else. And Mm -hmm. all these people, to a degree, wrote in some sense uh, with inspiration from Shakespeare. He was the big one at the time. And then Shakespeare, like I said, the Greek dramas and even the Roman uh, tragedies and... Your your Dantes and your Virgils and I don't think Dante was out before Shakespeare. That's around the same time, but Virgil, Horace, like any of these people that came out, you know, previous uh, Shakespeare got his inspiration from. So it's like nobody's actually original. Original, mm-hmm. uh, unless you're the first person who ever wrote anything. God, God was <laughs> the original. You don't even know if he was the first God. We don't know.
0: Well, I give this for the sake of being different. Four point one transfusions out of five
1: <laughs> i would have gave this a five if it was like 10 chapters shorter like if they took out some of the middle
0: yeah I, I i started to say uh some of the boring part I, I think i think some of the parts i really didn't care about were like before shit was going down and we were just yeah. hearing about like the women and stuff like not that there was a lot of talk just... about just
1: you know almost like pride and prejudice shit exactly just yeah like... that's where i was going uh, I'm getting a suitor. Oh, you have so many suitors, Lucy. Let's break every single character trait each suitor has down for yeah. endless dialogue. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that got a little bit. But the beginning of this was awesome. The boat ride, like when you read about the boat, was cool. The bloofer lady, which was Lucy sucking on kids' was that was cool. The All the thing any scene with Dracula was cool. Real uh, quick,
0: what a, what, I don't, I'm not familiar with bloofer.
1: I'm pretty sure that's what they called her. It was uh, I'll look it up to make sure I'm sick. because I remember it was like really stupid sounding. But in the newspaper articles about Lucy when she came back and was feeding on people when they thought she was dead, uh, there was just the sightings of the bloofer Lady. Oh,
0: okay. You don't I, remember
1: that? Vaguely. Because I remember I was like, why bloofer? Like they could have made that sound cooler. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So the ch- like the children would call her the bloofer Lady, and I was like her because you know back then they had a name. Everybody had a cool name in the newspaper if you were a villain of sorts like the jack the rippers and the what does it mean i think Bluefer might have been the town or something i don't know oh. or the, the the area she was in maybe uh, okay i see she was just the blooper. it wasn't creative like you know oh you're from green tree and you kill people you're the green tree killer like usually yeah, yeah. their actually names aren't very cool not right. everyone's like the zodiac killer <laughs> and even that's stupid if you think about it. oh he just wrote zodiac stuff like
0: <laughs> yeah you have anything else
1: I like Dracula, and I think people should read it, but I, I do have one edition. Yep. This book would have been a lot cooler if the Contra guys were in it with machine guns. <laughs> <laughs> that would have made it fucking awesome. Like, at the end, they just blow Dracula away with a fucking rocket launcher. You know, fucking Van Helsing throws away his stupid stakes and his little wafer crackers and just pulls out a BFG and just blasts the motherfucker. Like, yeah! I would have got
0: fucking pumped for that. You've been waiting to say that the entire episode, haven't you?
1: <laughs> Actually, I forgot about that, but <laughs> that's a good callback to the. You gotta have a callback to Castlevania episode. Well, okay, uh, that's gonna be my how I'm gonna solve anything <laughs> that comes on any episode. We like any problem in the episode is like, oh man, we played Sonic for some reason, and the goddamn yeah, Contra, Contra would have fixed Sonic's ass. <laughs> blasted that Eggman.
0: Uh, what'd you like better, the book of the game?
1: I uh, ooh, that's a good question. Mm. I like the book better because it didn't piss me off so much. The game was fun. I I think the better question is what has quote unquote better replay value. Would yeah. you rather play the game again or read the book again? That's hard too. I don't know it's a that, whole book,
0: but yeah, yeah, because le-
1: it's a toss up for me either way. Like I love the book and I love the game, so it's. Not I a-
0: wanted to read the book again. Yeah. I wanted to, cause I. But in a couple years, you're gonna want to play it.
1: Castlevania again too. Like yeah. once you get a long, you know, long enough break. I, I also segue. I've been watching these f- way too much waste of time, like hour long documentaries on video game records, like speed run records. And the Castlevania one was ridiculous. Like these guys were able to whittle it down to like. I think the record was like nine minutes and something. Oh, my God. Like to beat the game uh, beginning to end or something. Or, no, you know what? That was uh, Ninja Gaiden. I forget what the Castlevania one was. But regardless, like they beat it so fast. I was like, how? I yeah, go ahead and fucking beat it for hours and hours. <laughs> like, <you> jerks.
0: <laughs> I, I think because Castlevania, be like a couple hours, that has more replay slash readability. But it's, it's a really hard. It's a yeah. s- super hard toss I Honestly,
1: up, I can't really pick. I'm good with either one. Yeah. I will ask this, though, to end the episode. What is your favorite iteration of dracula did you just like the book the best or were you bella movies the the 90s move francis ford coppola movie you could even pick renfield with the Nicholas cage like whatever version of dracula you enjoy which one did you actually like the most uh,
0: that's hard <laughs> i kind of i kind of like okay i have to be partial to the Coppola movie because I'd
1: love, uh, but to be fair, that was the closest to the actual Dragon. novel. It was, novel.
0: it was the, and the differences weren't that big of a deal. Um,
1: it would have been even better movie if, uh, Keanu Reeves could at all do a British accent or just did yeah, away with the accent altogether. True. But that was the only flaw in that movie, really. I remember but Gary Oldman is Dracula's ace. Awesome.
0: Ol- I love Gary Oldman too much, so that I, I really, really liked him. I, the hair was weird, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, other than that, I, I like Nosferatu.
1: You know what? I and was going to say, I'm probably would though. be partial to Nosferatu. Yeah. Cause he was just, he was, cre- I go by creepy factor. Mm. He was like scary.
0: And with there being no Though he sound, wasn't, though
1: was... he wasn't suave at all really. Yeah. What was his name? Count Dugan or something? Dooku? Something like I don't know. But, uh, the Bela Lugosi one I didn't find it. He was more of the seducer Dracula. I don't like the sedu- I don't like the romanticized Draculas. Yeah. So I never got into like the uh, Anne Rice's Dracula stuff. I'm sure they're good. It's just I cuz I'm not a big vampire guy and I think a part of it is because I don't like the romanticization of vampires like oh they're sexy and they seduce you and i like I never found that scary. I don't find like the sex stuff scary, but I guess some people probably if you're a woman it makes sense because you know if you got seduced by some guy that's an actual creep and gives you syphilis or yeah you know bites your neck and kills you or whatever yeah that's like real fear but for a guy that's I not mean, I don't give a shit yeah scared i i read
0: one of those books i read like i didn't even know it i read like the 5th one oh, just out just a one i got it at a yard sale or uh, something like that and uh yeah I, I read it and i was like how does this why doesn't this make sense to me cuz
1: you didn't read the first four
0: <laughs> <laughs> it it is like its own story standing alone but it but the character had gone through like the main character had already gone through like five different transformations yeah before that I remember reading I remember what the first time I watched Nosferatu <laughs> I think I fell asleep because
1: you're not used to watching movies that are just music but Did you see the Willem Dafoe one I didn't see that one that one was awesome because I think it was supposed to be if I remember correctly it was the making of Nosferatu yeah but then it was you know I think it was colored like in color and then he was like he actually a creepy vampire yeah. Like how they think they made them. It was it was cool. It's been a long time since I've seen that. So I don't remember if that's the exact synopsis there, but it was pretty fucking cool. And he does, Willem Dafoe just does a great anything. So mm-hmm. he's he creepy. I think they're doing another one of those or something. Oh, really? With Willem Dafoe. If I remember correctly, I have to look at it.
0: Well, this has been a long episode of Arcade Bookshop. And we're happy that y'all are still listening. If you are, I thought it was a fun one.
1: Apparently, next year, that Nosferatu is coming out. And Willem really? Dafoe, he's not reprising his role. It's the uh the bill shaw scars Scha- guard uh he's gonna be nosferatu but well, be willem defoe is gonna play one of the professors or something so that's cool I like when they do that
0: yeah well everybody so if, if you hung on thank you so much this is fun for us i hope it's fun for you guys <laughs> i hope you're reading and playing along like we hoped everybody would look out for look out watch our instagram uh as we're recording this it's Only a, September right now. Yeah, it's September right now. We're recording ahead of time, and we up we we make decisions on the fly. Uh, just look out, watch, watch for us as things uh, as time goes on and we grow and everything. Try to rate us and review us. I hear that helps a lot with helping us grow. Yeah. Uh, be sure to follow or subscribe if you ever get your podcasts and share it with your friends. Yeah, our Instagram is at arcade underscore bookshop. If I didn't mention that already. Uh, reading reading and playing schedule is in the show notes and on our, our on our instagram and if you have any game and books book recommendations you can dm us on instagram or shoot us a message at arcadebookshop at gmail.com we would love to hear your suggestions i don't know what kind of merch we have today in january since it's <laughs> september but right now uh, stickers right now in september we got new stickers guys Pretty sweet too, and they're good. They're not. Ni- they're they're nice. They're not just those those papery ones that just tear yeah. in half.
1: By January, you might even have like hoodies and
0: hats and stuff. Yeah, like that'll be pretty cool. That's my dream. <laughs> I hope people want to purchase those things. Maybe
1: like underpants and thongs. Oh, be That's wonderful. my dream.
0: I just want arcade bookshop up and down, inside and out,
1: everywhere. <laughs> arcade bookshop tampons. <laughs> Shaped like a video game. I'll plastic. use them.
0: <laughs> yeah, when I <mean> you will. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, let's not forget Caleb and his life outside of our little podcast here.
1: Well, assuming my podcast is still up and running, I don't <laughs> see why it wouldn't. It's been up for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, you can check out the Drunken Pen Writing Podcast at DPW Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, X, or whatever the fuck it's called in January now, Um, Facebook, and YouTube. And you could check out my website, calebjamesk.com. By this time, I've been published in the New Yorker, the <laughs> Dublin Review, the Paris Review. Oh, I'm just thinking big. January, New Year, maybe I've been published in all these. I finally got a lot of acceptances, I hope.
0: You got four or five months. Yeah,
1: or by the time this episode airs, I have been published in nothing else. I've But either way, you can check out stuff out at my website. I don't have merch, but I probably should get merch. Maybe when this drops, we'll For I don't know. I'm not very... uh ambitious on because it's work i don't want to do all the work but yeah, back money. to you bryce
0: all right thank you everybody for listening again this is arcade bookshop i'm bryce yoli and across from me is caleb james please do yourself a favor and stick a controller in one hand and your book in the other